Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes some of the best art materials that you can get. You can find their products online at goldenpaints.com or in your local art store. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum makes incredible coffee that you can have delivered to your door. Check out their website, fulcrumcoffee.com, where you can order subscription coffee services to have different blends delivered straight to your door, and you could save by entering code ALFREDSTUDIO when you check out. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists of all levels to join the upcoming five-day intercession marathon entitled Constructing Space, led by painter Ed Preby, and taking place from Thursday, March 21st through Monday, March 25th, 2024. Rigorous and immersive, the Studio School's legendary marathons present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Virtual marathons are led in real-time online, enabling artists to participate from their studios anywhere in the world. Visit nyss.org to apply today and stay tuned for summer marathons coming up in June and July. is an artist who lives in New York's Hudson Valley. Primarily focusing on painting, sculpture, and drawing, he graduated with a BFA in fine art from the Cooper Union. He's had solo exhibitions at BFI Miami, James Fuentes Gallery, Anat Ebge Gallery, Harper's Books, Stems Gallery, and Almin Reich. His current exhibition, titled Porta Mantis, is on view until March 2nd, and Anat Epke Gallery's Fountain Avenue location in Los Angeles. Here's our conversation. And I really dig it. You know, the city's like an hour and a half by train, so I can literally take the train and have a meeting and come back. Yeah. Like in time for dinner. And and I just paint, so it's pretty pretty easy. You know, it's just family, it's family and yeah. studio. And it is super beautiful. Like once you live here, you realize it makes sense why there's an entire art movement based on just painting landscapes up here because it's super inspiring. It's the original sublime, you know? The, yeah, uh, exactly. The, the romantic, the Hudson, the romantic the ideal. Hudson River School. Yeah, it's like you when you're up there. And, you know, we my family goes up and Airbnbs it a lot up there yeah. to get out. And, uh, you know, you see those Thomas Cole paintings and you get it. It's yeah. Like it, it's I mean, like I have that. It's to, beautiful. Yeah, I have to cross a bridge every morning. And it's like, you know, I have to stop myself from staring. Yeah. Um, and I, every I imagine day space too, right? Yeah. Like you have more space. Yeah, you have more space. It's, you know, it's hard to find space. Like my studio is not like my dream studio like in a strip mall but it's like commercial space is actually pretty difficult to come by up here um but you do get that big sky i grew up in florida 
Um, yeah. You know, and I was always just blown away by like the, how you can see like the circularity of the sky. Right. And I think when you live in New York, it turns into like strips of sky. Um, and it's really nice to be able to just see the entire sky every day. I don't know. It's like a luxury. Definitely. Itself. And you know, it, it might be a false sort of like stereotype, but when I think of upstate studios, I think either garages or yeah. like an external studio on the property that's built and big, but it's not always yeah. that case, right? No, I mean, I know people who have really incredible studios, um, but yeah, building is really expensive. Yeah. So, you know, I think if I saved for a couple of years or more, <laughs> I might be able right. to do it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm always on the lookout. You know, my the space itself is actually great. It's really comfortable and it has heat and AC and high ceilings and the lights are good. So I can't really complain. Um, it's just like in the in the spring when it's like nice out. You know, I'm just like I don't even have windows. You know, so yeah. in and you cave. think like if you're upstate, you know, you'd have a studio with like some big windows right. and you get to see nature jet. That's not my situation at all. Yeah. But um, we've all seen those, and then you just think, wow, that's that's great if that's the norm. You know, the, it's the sort of a house and outback, there's this modern, middle, totally. that's the dream. you know, rectangle with skylights and yeah. big windows on one side. And yeah. yeah, that's the dream. But that's, you know, I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe one day, but right now it's not the case. But, you know, when I'm working, I just get into, into like a mind vortex anyway. So it's almost doesn't matter like it would be nice but painting is so i get so focused when i'm working that i just everything else disappears anyway so maybe it's good to yeah it's totally, like totally thx kind of space you know yeah i had uh, my old studio in in brooklyn was no windows the, yeah and i didn't mind it because i could project things and you get lost in your world and you lose track of the time of day sometimes, which is nice. But the only thing for yeah. me is there was no ventilation. So that was kind of a Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, also, in times when I have had to paint in places with windows, there'd be whole hours of the day that I had to stop painting because there'd be like sunbeams on the painting. Oh, and yeah. it was like, you know, from a skylight. So I couldn't do anything about it. Um, right. And there is something nice about having really consistent light the entire day, you know, even though yeah. it's artificial. Um, but, you know, I ha I've had the experience where I paint a painting and then I take it to the show and like something I thought was orange is like hot pink because <laughs> right. the lighting in the yeah. gallery is totally different. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that happens, but you know, it's just part of it. You make do, we make do, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, how did you, uh, you, did you grow up in Florida? What part of Florida? Uh, I grew up on, on an island called Key Biscayne. And if you're from uh, Miami, you probably know what it is. But it's actually really cool. It's like south of downtown and Brickell Avenue. There's just like a causeway. It goes over the water. It's like where the, you know, where the Miami Sea Aquarium is where Flipper lives. And yeah. You yeah. go over a couple of bridges and then you keep driving through these woods. And then you end up in this like little town. And I always say that town doesn't really exist anymore because um, when I moved there in the mid '80s, it was it was still um, a continuation of when it was 
kind of originally built as a community, which is in the post-war period as GI housing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, the island when I moved there in the eighties still felt like the fifties. Like there was a pharmacy with a diner. There was the supermarket was like Winn Dixie or Pantry Pride and you walked in, it was all brown. Like they literally were, you know, and the place I learned to swim was like an actual motel from the fifties, like right on the nice. beach. Um but in ninety two there was a hurricane and it like destroyed everything. And then it all got rebuilt like modern. So it doesn't look like how it used to look, but um, right. it was a cool place to grow up. It was one yeah, of those I places could, I, where, you know, kids were just free. Like I could ride my bike from one end of the island to the other and go to the beach or go to people's houses. You know, it was like a totally too, different time. Being near water, like you mentioned, is, yeah. is kind of something that's a constant. I love being near the water. Yeah. The only thing I can imagine these days as I got, I've gotten older is a fear of like, you know, weather or like water related oh, really? issues. If you, if, well, if you live near the, the ocean, you're going to either catch a storm or flooding or, you know, that that's yeah. an issue. Yeah. I mean, I lived through a uh, hurricane Andrew. It was the summer before my freshman year in that. high school. Yeah. That and was that was one. absolutely insane. I mean, think that and like 9-11 are probably the two craziest things I've ever experienced because, you know, we we lived on the island, like I said, so we actually had to evacuate. We spent the night in my dad's office, which is like a maybe a mile and a half or something inland from yeah. the water because they evacuate the island. And, you board um, everything up, right? You, you plywood I lived everything. in a condo at the time, and it was, oh, my okay. apartment was interior-facing, so right. it was pretty safe. Um yeah, people used to board stuff up, but if there's like four feet of water, like it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. What you board. Well, up. that's just to protect from cars flying into the window or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was nuts. Flying. It was really nuts. Yeah. You know, they had to, like, we slept in my dad's office and we woke up the next morning and everything was destroyed. Like, yeah. all the power lines were down. Like traffic lights were on the floor. There was plants everywhere that got shredded, broken glass. There were boats like half a mile in. Um, and once we got to the island, our place was fine. But my friends' houses had like a brown line like halfway up the wall. And water you know? just destroys like yeah. nothing else. Like I mean, that that motel, that fifties motel, was completely destroyed. You know, and we walked around the whole island and like rode our bikes and like everything was trashed school was delayed by like a couple of weeks to start you know and then once i started school because it was a magnet school where lots it was called new world school of the arts where a lot of different kids from all over miami get bussed in who are you know studying art theater dance and all that stuff you know the stories kids told us like were crazy like i know friends who Spent the entire night in water up to here with no roof holding onto pipes. And imagine Jeez. spending seven hours like that, you know? And we would bring clothes for kids. I mean, it was nuts. I mean, it was a level of destruction that I never imagined that experience. Um, well, these are my fears. You're just... Uh, yeah, it's pretty nuts. <laughs> you're, you know, that's what I've always... I, I think maybe Andrew was the first one that I remember as a kid yeah. of like a TV weather incident oh, like yeah. where it was on TV 100%. and people were reporting yeah. and it was, you know, kind of crazy. Like yeah. it, it imprints into your mind when you see that kind of chaos on TV. Yeah. So, so you got through it. Yeah. 
people were really, it was actually amazing, you know, because people were super helpful and really took care of each other. And, you know, there were parts of Miami where it was bad. Yeah. But at least where we were, everybody was pretty cooperative, you know. Um, right. It did, it weirdly did feel like a positive thing to experience, um, you know, it was a lot of devastation. You know, I just saw people like really pull together and be really supportive of each other. So I don't know if it's just an illusion. You know, I was like pretty young. You know, I was about to go into ninth grade, but at least that's how it seemed to me. I think know? that tends to come out in duress in times of duress. It's kind of sad that we need that kind of thing to see yeah. that sign of human nature come out yeah. in a more aggressive way. I mean, it happens in a micro level every day, you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. something every day in the New York city subways, something is crazy is going down. And then there's like good Samaritans or people pulling together for something. And it's like, you know, I, I sadly, I think in times like that, it's heightened or you see more of it. It comes to the surface a bit more. Yeah. I mean, I also think that, we have like all these fears about how stuff would go down, which makes sense because we're, you know, I feel like apocalyptic and devastation narratives are constantly being reinforced in everything we watch. But um, I think when you're actually alive and you experience something like that, I don't know, at least I, none of the people I saw turned greedy or evil. We'd be right. like, okay, today we're going to, you know, take stuff out of this person's house. You know, I was like helping my yeah. friend go through his bedroom. I don't know. You just kind of want to help people. I don't know. But who knows? Like I said, I feel like, I feel like contemporary media is really invested in creating tons of fear about human nature. And I think in every, every experience I've had so far, that was like scary. Um, people came through so i don't know it's hard to know what to believe you know yeah i think that's, that's one of the problems of you know the media is just whatever is more whatever has more draw just go all in on that you know yeah remember Definitely. when we were younger and on the nightly news that was kind of like the only news and it yeah. was always like a feel-good story and it was like the last 45 seconds of the broadcast yeah. it was like doom and gloom <laughs> Yeah, twenty six minutes, and then you got thirty seconds of like, now for a good story, you know that's kind of the news in a nutshell. Yeah, it's funny too because I remember back in the day, you know, my parents never put restrictions on me watching TV, and I think when the news would come on, I would kind of like turn it off, but then I would watch things like Twenty Twenty. Oh wow! You know, or like sixty minutes. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, even as a little kid, I was like, I want the in depth analysis you know like i don't want right. to just hear about like horrible stuff and it was so much easier to avoid back then now it's like totally unavoidable you can yeah. yeah just it's in your feed whether you like it or not yeah because everyone else wants to watch a train wreck you're gonna see the train wreck too yeah but we're gonna throw some like cool shoes and like attractive people and like of some course, entertainment yeah. and some new paintings <laughs> in there you know just yeah. to like soften you up yeah, diversify the feed a little bit, you know, yeah. keep you there. You don't want to make it all doom and gloom. I feel like we're <laughs> getting little seeds or little nuggets of uh, of where in your work some of your world building or things might be uh, 
where you might have thought or been some impressions might have been made. But we'll get to that. So yeah. how about school? Was that school? Uh, was that a good experience? Going? It sounds like yeah. It was a you know, it's arts. nuts. It's like my, I've always drawn when I was a kid. Like my mom says, I was drawing before I could even talk. You know, yeah. and my parents are artistic themselves, so they they were just like, go for it. Um, I drew so much that I think when my mom told me, like when I was six years old, she got so tired of organizing paper that she like started making me draw in sketchbooks, and I'm. I'm a super detail-oriented, like, fastidious person. So I was like, okay. You know, so I actually started drawing in sketchbooks when I was, like, five or six. Um, and I still have, like, all of them. Um, nice. And I never stopped, you know. But they, my parents are super supportive. And part of the reason why we moved to the U.S. is not only work opportunities for them, but they wanted us to have, like, more opportunities in terms of our education. And... You know, from the time I was in elementary school, when we moved there, I was in second grade. My parents were like, you know, there's like special schools that you can go and you'd spend half the day doing art. And they were public. You know, I was like, no way. That's awesome. And so by the time I got to sixth grade, I applied to go to a junior high school that had an art program. I got in and, you know, it was like life changing. Yeah, like to be in a classroom full of kids who like art just as much as I do, you know, as opposed to my elementary school that I had two friends, you know, because um, everyone else like would make fun of you for drawing. Oh, really? But, um, that bad? Wow, that's harsh. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in general people were nice, but you know, my friend. Like my two friends and I like were kind of already into like like punk rock and um, you know we were, we were really into like the Dead Milkman. Like our whole <laughs> sense of humor was like based on the Dead Milkman, which got us in a lot of trouble. Um, but you know we loved drawing and we loved art and music, and everyone was like really into sports like really into soccer and stuff. So we just didn't fit in. But once I got to junior high, then I'm surrounded. I'm like in a class full of kids, you know, not necessarily into the same stuff as me, but they all like making art. Um, right. And I went to junior high school to an art program. And then in Miami, there was this pretty famous school called New World School of the Arts, um, which is like a feeder school for like every art college in the U.S. Um and that was like an amazing experience primarily because, you know, there are some kids older than us, like when you start as a freshman, you know, you look up to the seniors and the seniors were like super cool. Like I, we couldn't even like believe how cool they were. Um, and it was like the early nineties, you know? So like there were all these, these guys and girls who were seniors in the art program, you know, who had like jean jacket with like a Morrissey painting in the back and they had like the nice. Morrissey hair and they were like yeah, all yeah. into like Cocteau twins and stuff. So we were like, whoa, like these people are so cool. And their art was like kind of a mix of like 19th century style drawing with like some goth stuff. Like, you know, they had like this very strong aesthetic already. Yeah. You know, as high school seniors. Um, but art class kind of devolved into its own kind of weird mix of you know a lot of us even at that point we're still into skateboarding and graffiti but we're also into like indie rock and 
and like thrift shopping and like fashion and I don't know it's like a really crazy mix of kids but everyone was really talented and everyone had this really strong identity and kind of the point was to get into college you know to get into art school like the entire school was like basically designed to like get you into the school you wanted to get into and this is a public school by the way and still exists which is kind of unbelievable um kind of like LaGuardia-esque. And from right? there, uh, you know, the dream was to to leave Miami and move to New York. So naturally, like, yeah. Cooper is, like, where you want to go. Especially at the time, it was, you know, it was free. free. Like, your tuition yeah. would be paid if you got in. That's a good and draw. And my dad pretty early on said, there's not a chance in hell I'm going to let you take out student loans because he saw, like, all his friends taking out crazy loans for the kids he's like i'm not doing that yeah you know so he's like you're gonna go to like you know a community college if you don't get a full ride (laughs) for college you know so i made it like my mission to get into cooper i think out of the class of 60 at cooper like six of us got in which is an insane percentage of just is that a is there a historic relationship between the schools to where they take a lot of your school people they normally take like i think a couple yeah i think our class might as far as i know it's the most uh and it wasn't just in my class you know my best friend this guy jorge albrecht um we've been friends in second grade and his his parents had already paid for him to like go to like a Florida school and he's like an incredible mm-hmm. artist and musician. And, you know, we were friends and collaborators like all through our youth and in high school, especially. And I was in a school that was like telling me, okay, if you want to get into Cooper, like this is all the stuff you have to do. And I told him like, dude, you should go to Cooper too. He's like, there's no way I'm going to get in. And I'm like, no, no, I'll just teach you everything they're teaching me. I'll show you the path. And you do it too. And he was like, right. all right, I'll try it. And his parents were like, if you get a full tuition scholarship, of course we have to let you move to New York. Um, and he ended up getting in, which is kind nice. of insane. <laughs> well, so you had the it's crazy code. that it worked, you know? Yeah. It's crazy that it worked, but it did work. Um, and yeah, it was like a whole crew of us um, who went to Cooper together. A couple of us were lost like in the, the beachhead of foundation year like yeah but uh you know a, a bunch of us like finished got through the whole thing and um you know i'm sure you've heard about cooper union in the 90s um which was a pretty shocking uh wake-up call for me personally because you know i was always into art even as a kid, but I had a very kind of um, expansive and inclusive definition of art. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents never, ever created hierarchies. They weren't like, this art's good and this art's bad. And, you know, right. but we did have like really nice furniture. My dad had worked in interior design. Um, so we had like the Saarinen, like tulip dining set. We had like these Vandero chairs and our house was like really nice, like modern, like a big glass living room. Nice. And they had like amazing books. They had amazing art books. They had like, my dad was at the time like doing photography and stuff. So we had like a million photography books and fashion photography books, Helmut Newton stuff. And my mom 
was a model and actress and you know she was really into fashion and did styling too so i kind of grew up around these like very heavy aesthetic surroundings um and i just like loved everything like and i'm talking when i'm like memories of being four or five six like being obsessed with like our dining chairs and my half brothers as he would take me down the street and i could name every car you know i was just like obsessed with the design of cars and i was just like really into stuff you know once i saw star wars it was like over like i was just (laughs) totally obsessed with star wars and the importance of these seemingly disparate things like all existed in the same place for me. Like I didn't, I didn't see a difference. Like to me, like a chair was art to me, star Wars was art. And it was really interesting. You know, there's always the cliches, like every kid's born an artist and it's like the system that teaches you how to not be an artist as opposed to the opposite. Crush it out of you. Yeah. And my experience of that was like pretty, pretty vivid it made a huge impact on me because i was i had this very expansive definition of art and to me everything was art and as a kid like you know we had like tin tin books and and uh sorry i'm like that person that once i have to recall something it flies out of my brain but uh, i was really into like tin tin um and in south america in the 80s like all the cartoons on TV were just Japanese anime translated mm-hmm. to Spanish. Um, yeah. So I grew up watching those cartoons, which are really, if you watch them now, they're super psychedelic, you know, like yeah. galaxy express or something like they're nuts. They're not linear or normal at all. And they have these really complicated plot lines and weird ideas. Um, and there's also this cartoonist, Argentinian cartoonist called Kino made a strip he's famous for a strip called Mafalda which like she asks her parents like really crazy questions like adult inquisitive yeah but like in a very in a way that is a critique of contemporary politics basically right it's almost like a political cartoon yeah and the way he draws is just so amazing and as a kid I was just obsessed I was like oh I hope I can draw as well as Kino one day um So I had all these influences and stuff, which kind of resulted in me having this weirdly illustrative cartoony drawing style. Mm -hmm. Um, And my problems with that came to a head when I was in that junior high school I told you about where I had an art program where the teacher was giving a talk about um, having a sketchbook and the importance of having a sketchbook. And he said, does anyone keep a sketchbook already? And, you know, me being all, like, thinking I'm so cool. I'm like, oh, me. And I, like, hand him the sketchbook, and he flips through it, starts laughing, closes it. And as he's handing it back to me, he says, no, no, this isn't art. This is cartoons. (laughs) That's in high school? No, that's in junior high school. And then art junior high school. I thought you were going to save that for Cooper. No, no, it gets worse. This is, like, the for (laughs) me, it's, like, the the origin story of this whole dilemma for me. Um, So from that point on, I had to keep two sketchbooks. I had like my sketchbook with my like drawings of all sorts of random stuff because I would draw everything, you know, 
Like I would be like, I want to do a skate company. And then I would sit there in my sketchbook and draw like a whole line of t-shirts, the pants, design a bunch of skate sneakers. And I would draw the decks, do artwork for the decks and design a font, do the typography. And my friends and I would just do that for fun. You know, we'd make up a skateboard company and like draw the permutations and ideas that, that that's company that that skate company could be about and, and hide it from your teachers <laughs> yeah because you couldn't like if you did graffiti or drew cartoon characters or did any of that stuff like they would get pissed like they didn't want to see it they wanted you to have like the big thick sketchbook that was basically brown because like you don't know yeah. anything about materials so you're like mixing charcoal and watercolor and it's just like an ugly mess and you collage some like physics today images on it and you're like i'm an artist you know and they'd <laughs> right. look at this and be like wow you worked really hard on the sketchbook but it's like it was all a farce like that that wasn't me at all i was just doing it because it was required of me by the yeah. class and the rest of the time you know you're doing still life and figure drawing and stuff and all that stuff i loved and did value you know because i was like well i want to learn traditional ways of making art you know i quickly found out that i'm not that artist because even in seventh grade there'd be kids in my class who could draw a fucking perfect figure drawing perfectly in proportion with shading and all this stuff and you're just like i can't do that right. <laughs> like i'm not even close like <laughs> I, you know i could kind of do it but i couldn't that's not the type of artist i am you know yeah. like and i learned that really early then i went to, to new world school of the arts and it was the same thing. I had my personal sketchbook and then I had my brown collage watercolor, angsty, you know, high school art sketchbook. Um, right. And it wasn't until like a portfolio prep class like in junior year that I had one of the teachers helping me like with my portfolio, looking at stuff. And he was looking through like my brown sketchbook and he's like, you know, this, this like isn't, this kind of just looks like everything else. You know, he's like, I don't see anyone at any college looking at the sketchbook and seeing you in it, you know? He's like, if I can be honest and stuff. And I was like, yeah. He's like, like, don't you have anything else to show me? And I was like, well, I have my secret sketchbook. And he's like, what do you mean your secret <laughs> sketchbook? I'm like, I have my sketchbook that I draw my stuff that none of the teachers want to see. Yeah, the not for art class stuff. Exactly the not for art school sketchbook. And I, he's like, do you have it? I'm like, yeah, I hand it to him. And he's like flips through it page by page, cracking up. And he's like, I never want to see that brown sketchbook ever again. He's like, throw that in the trash. He's like, from now on, this is what you show people. You know, and I was terrified because I'm like, my entire life is on the line. Yeah, my entire <laughs> life is on the line. Like, I want to get yeah. into Cooper and I'm going to send him like my random... You know, by the time I was in high school, you know, my sketchbooks went from being like the skate company ideas to like the craziest, you know, weird drawings, you know, that were all psychedelic. And, you know, we had all started smoking weed. So we got like super tripped out. And, you know, we, the stuff we were into just, you know, by that point, I was like listening to like my bloody Valentine into like Teen B Records. Like our favorite band was like the Swirlies. And then it was like, whoa, the Swirlies. That, yeah, they're like my favorite that's band. A deep, that's a deep cut. Yeah, the Swirlies were like, my friends and I, that was like our favorite band. 
Like, although they I, were I like, feel like we that idolized, is, you know, that's kind of like an art school person. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's like the kids. But that, yeah. That was good. So, Swirlies is like everyone or not everyone, but people know who my bloody Valentine is. They're like, Oh yeah, that's the loud shoegazer band. But if you yeah. know the Swirlies, that's, that's the deep cut. Weren't they from I Maryland? Mean, no, they're from, uh, in Boston. They were loud. They yeah. took they took the uh, My Bloody Valentine mantle and, and ran with the, the volume. I mean, they... I mean, I remember, like, with my friends, like, you know, their first album? Um, the, the green CD? I remember the green one that had, like, taped collage picture on oh, it Oh, yeah, or something. that's a What to Do About Them. That's, like, their first EP. And then that's after really that, it's so good. And then they, their first album... Blonder Tongue Audio Baton. Like that album, I remember when we heard that album. Because I remember like the first time I heard My Bloody Valentine. And it was like an aesthetic experience for me. It was like, this is everything I want from art, period. Like <laughs> no music that I listened to in my life ever affected me the way I, I felt when I first heard My Bloody Valentine. But there was something about the Swirlies that even though they're technically a shoegaze band, right? Um, they are just like so incredible and original and their recordings are so deep. Like, you know, if you're into that kind of music, which we were, and we would fetishize like every aspect of the music and just like their chord progressions, their sound, the synth sounds, the arrangements of the songs were really nutty. You know, they had like the way they used noise the way the mix would be like super quiet and really simple. And then it would explode into like this crazy amount of noise. You know, there's songs where like even just the drum sound, like the snare drum plays the same beat, but from part to part, they like completely change the snare drum sound. Yeah. And it's this level of like super nerdy detail that you can get into. But I think what I, I appreciated about it was the complexity of it. Right. You know, because yeah, like Nirvana was cool. And like when Nirvana came out, it was like world changing, you know, but like I was already listening to the Pixies when Nirvana came out. Yeah. So the whole like it's loud and then it's quiet thing. I was like, oh, it's cool, you know, but it was like groundbreaking. It changed the way like people perceive music and stuff. Um, right. And I think that yeah, Nirvana, like Nirvana was a little more mainstream. I think they were able, even though they were, you know, who they were as individuals, they were able to be much more mainstream. Whereas like a band like Mercury Rev mm -hmm. was doing stuff yeah. that was so out there. Yeah. You know, it's like Minutemen versus Ramones or something. You know, there's people who do it in a more, I don't know, in a way that doesn't, it's not going to connect to as many people necessarily, but they're pushing things in different directions. The Swirlies were so, I wouldn't even think to try to break down that sound because it was so layered and crazy. I know I'm sitting here trying to explain it. I, you know, it just seemed it seemed so <laughs> left field. You know, like they just it had was a recording just device really, in a room and it was chaos. I mean, it was really new and really original and aesthetically. The mu it's hard to talk about music aesthetics, but I don't know how else to talk about it because I see images when I listen to music. You know, and yeah. For me, it's the single most inspiring thing I can do. Like, if I don't know what to do, I just start playing music and I imagine a million things just from the music, you know? Like, when I'm working okay. on a show, I make a whole playlist just for that show that I listen to. Are you, are you one of those, I guess maybe not closeted, but one of the few artists where we feel like sometimes music's more 
influential than looking at hi- the history of art. I mean, Oof. it can I do mean, something do totally begin? different. Yeah. It's not, I but do it think, is. No, anyway, I think, I know? do think though, I will say, and I've said this before, and even saying it makes me feel a little bit self-conscious, but I do think music is like the best art form out of all. I say it too. You know, I say, I love art. I mean, I've devoted my life. I love art music. I love art, but like, you know, you get the Cooper and then they're like, art is not about aesthetics. Okay. Art is about symbols. Art is about symbols existing in, in a, in a simulated reality, you know? Yeah. Like you read Baudrillard, like they sit you down in freshman year and make you read like, I'm going to say it wrong, you know, simulacra and simulation. And after that, you're like, he's right. Like, why would I paint? You know, but yeah. music is completely free of any sort of, of kind of aesthetic imperialism. Like it purely exists on its own terms. And just for the moment, you're listening to it. And then it has a second life. Probably the closest thing is like how it lives in your brain after you've listened to it. Um, But, you know, I'm not someone who gets tired of music. Like all the music that I like when I first hear it, I still listen to, you know, things like don't go out of style for me. Like, and, you know, my kids are pretty tolerant of my playlists and stuff when I drive them to school and they're like, all the music, you like sounds the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's called aesthetics kids. Um, <laughs> but yeah, music is the best just because like, it just makes you not only does it just create, I mean, maybe it's personal. Like it just, the, the way it makes me feel, nothing else makes me feel. And it has a direct relationship to what I make, you know? And like yeah. the way I like, relate to to the world i don't know how to explain it it's really hard to talk about without something like a total cheese ball but no i know what you mean i i i I, but i love that it doesn't have to look like anything right it just is but it's being causes the same emotional reaction that other things with a visual component create right and i think that's what's awesome about it yeah totally well so to to connect back to the the sketchbook thing yeah so the sketchbook so did you did you fly with the the wacky yeah, sketchbook and I that's took how his, you started I, I living took his life? suggestion i took the teacher's suggestion and i said okay i'm gonna take a chance i was terrified i'm gonna send my wacky sketchbook to and you know to get into cooper they had like the famous home tests where you know there's all these things you have to do you have like a set paper size it all has to fit in an envelope and it'll give you prompts for making a piece. So one was like, that's oh, funny, it was sound and distance, I remember, was one of the things you had to do. <laughs> and you had to just take that phrase and make art out of it. I did send the sketchbook, and I did get into Cooper. Um, so my friends and I all moved to New York, you know, thinking, like, we're going to be in, like, now you can say it, it's like the Hogwarts of art where it's like all the most talented artists from all over the country um, are going to be like condensed into this one class, you know, that was the fantasy. But of course I get there and it was like, 
it was nothing. It was like not, it was just not what I expected. You know, first of all, you start off with foundation year, um, which if you've gone to art school, um, oh God, it's so hard to talk about because now I want to like talk about Gropius in the Bauhaus. But, you know, the whole idea, there's just so much critique about art schools. It's like, I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm on one side of the argument or the other. Right. Um, like I had a horrible time at Cooper. My, my college experience was one of the hardest things I've ever experienced, but I'm very grateful I went there and I had that experience just to put it out there for, you know, for context. Um, but I got there and basically they were like, you can't paint, you can't draw, you can't make stuff look nice. You know, um, wait, that was their critique or they were saying you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> I mean, there was literally no point in even doing it because no one would take you seriously. And the professors uh-huh. were like these very serious New York, like conceptual art, postmodern institutional critique, you know, political art, like people. And that was like everyone, you know, and you know, these are the people teaching you like foundation year, like 3d design. You know, and <laughs> I love that. I imagine like Chris Burden teaching, like, <laughs> intro yes, drawing. Yes, I can, <laughs> I can, because it wasn't that different from what I actually yeah, experienced. Yeah. You know, and for me, someone who not only is like extremely aesthetically driven and sensitive, and I'm also really into like narrative, which is another thing you weren't really allowed to talk about because that's not cool. It's not cool, <laughs> you know. Um, and I kind of like, you know, the point of foundation year is to erase your idea of who you are as an artist. And it's meant to put all the students on the same footing conceptually, right? And the idea of foundation year was actually started in the Bauhaus because in the Bauhaus, like when Gropius formed it, the whole idea was that he's he said... He saw industrialization coming and said, we need to train artists to design the world, which is soon going to be mass produced. And there has to be kind of, uh, kind of aesthetic and conceptual guidelines for making the world not super ugly. You know, someone, if you're mass producing plates, like someone still has to design the original plate that gets mass produced. And Gropius whole idea for the Bauhaus was I'm going to, I'm going to train people to do this job to basically create the modern world. And foundation year was meant to teach you the basics of two dimensional design, three dimensional design, color, um, and drawing. Cause drawing is the ultimate medium of communication, right? I'm sure when it comes to design and aesthetics and production. Yeah. Um, and once all the people who taught at the Bauhaus were left Europe for, you know, reasons that are obvious and moved to the United States to found places like Black Mountain College or IIT and all these schools, they brought the Bauhaus system to the United States. And that's why at Cooper, you still have foundation year. Um, and the whole point was to take little old me who thought like, I'm an awesome artist already. And look at all my friends. We're already all awesome artists and we're so cool and advanced to basically like sit you down and be like, you're not... <laughs> You know, your, like, crazy weird sketchbook is totally, like, trivial. That's not what art is, you know. 
and God forbid you even like brought up anything like that. You're like, well, so when I get out of school, like, can I, should I try to be an artist? And they were like, no, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they like refused to even talk about the art world. And it was also kind of ironic because then you'd have a professor be like, you guys need to go to every art opening. You guys should see all the shows in the galleries, you know? So inevitably we'd end up at like American fine arts, which is like the coolest gallery probably that ever existed in New York. Um, and that was like a whole different picture because it was this wild punk, like super cool um, scene. But, you know, they weren't making paintings either. They were doing like crazy videos and installations. And like there was like Art Club 2000, you know, doing. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with like their work, but. Yeah, yeah. You know, they'd all sit around wearing Gap, you know, and take photos of it and. It was all a critique of capitalism, I guess. Um, no, isn't it ironic though? Just to to tie together a thread here is yeah that, that kind of um, you know thinking of like Black Mountain or Gropius or things like that. Yeah, the irony is a lot of that was about maybe destroying some of the hierarchies of fine art and, and implementing ideas of design into like art into everything, everyday objects yeah. and. And that's kind of what you were interested in before going to school, but then going to Cooper Union, they were squeezing that stuff out of you in a way through those, through that um, structure that was originally designed to level the the hierarchy of what art is, yeah. and how it integrates into your daily life. Isn't Something got lost in translation on the boat yeah. over. <laughs> I mean, I it's crazy because. You know, I taught at Parsons. I taught, like, freshman year digital design and stuff. I think it makes sense. And that's kind of what I was saying about Cooper, where it's like, you know, the whole time I had an identity crisis because I was like, you know, freshman year, they were telling us, like, there's no point in painting. It's a dead end. It's completely just, like, for decoration and the art world. You know, the commercial art world has squeezed any sort of relevance out of painting. And I was like, you know, fuck that. I'm still going to take painting. And I took one semester of painting and I never took painting again because they were right. Because then I'm all of a sudden I'm sitting in a class. I go from like sculpture class where we're talking about like all these crazy ideas that were really tripped out. You know, like I brought like people talking about like semiotics and, you know, again, like the whole Baudrillard thing was like huge because it kind of created a framework for what's the point of a painting if it's just another simulation that's just thrown into like the endless stream of simulations that, that suck all the meaning out of anything you do. Right. Right. And I'd be in a painting class and people would be like, like painting Cezanne apples. (laughs) So at the same time, I'd be like, yeah, what is the point? You know? See, I think it, uh, that's maybe a testament to the advanced nature of Cooper as an art school. Exactly. Is because I, I think agree. a lot of people in their <laughs> in their BFA programs, yeah, learn foundations and basics, but they're not exposed to that kind of, you know, critique of no of what uh, until graduate school or much later in advanced courses as an undergraduate. But yeah, I was having a little bit of nostalgia there for that time period of my youth when there was actually people cared enough to say, yeah, painting's dead. I mean, that was amazing, you know? I mean, it was <laughs> you crazy felt like you had to because... Defend it. 
Yeah, and I couldn't defend it because I would be like, yeah, but what about Gerhard Richter? You know? They're like, Gerhard yeah. Richter is a conceptual artist whose medium is painting. So, like, there's the no way around it. That all painting is conceptual. I mean, that's the thing. If you're in well, the game long enough, here we go. <laughs> you can, you can, you know, you can argue your way in or out of anything, to be honest. So, absolutely. Just, but when you're a student, you're not equipped with that. So, you're like, yeah, I guess you're right. I should be climbing on the walls of the Whitney and drawing on the ceiling. And that's, that well, is what I should be doing right now. Well, here's the ultimate irony for me is that at some point uh, before I moved to New York, there was a show called Defining the 90s that was in the Museum of Contemporary Art in Miami. And my friends and I were really into contemporary art, by the way. Once we got to high school, you know, we realized like there was all this cool stuff going on and we taught ourselves and every once in a while we'd have a professor who would like give us a lecture on Joseph Boys and we'd all be like, what? You know, have our minds blown. And I saw this piece, I think it was Facility of Incline or something by Matthew Barney. Mm-hmm. And just like the aesthetics of the installation already grabbed me, but they grabbed me like like this, you know, I was like, oh yeah. my God, this is so cool. Then I'm watching the video of him like climbing and drawing. And it's like all these things came together for me in my head that I had never thought about art. And I became kind of like a Matthew Barney obsessive. And this is like in high school. So before, you know, towards the end of high school. and That's advanced. <laughs> well, one of the first things my friends and I did when we got to New York, when we all realized like, oh, you like Matthew Barney? Oh, you like Matthew Barney too? You know, you'd have to make an appointment at Barbara Gladstone Gallery. And they had like a little screening room. And we would all, we'd made an, make an appointment all sit there and watch. Like at the time, it was only Crime Master 4 and Crime Master 1 that had come out. Um, and we were like totally obsessed, at least me personally, my friends were too, but I'll, I'll come out of the Matthew Barney closet and say like, yeah, like I'm a hundred percent all in on Matthew Barney. Matthew Barney was like the Voldemort of Cooper Union. <laughs> like sometimes I would bring up Matthew Barney in a critique just to see how pissed people would get about it. And the stuff professors said about Matthew Barney at Cooper was like so mind-blowing because they're like, he's a football player. He went to Yale on a football scholarship. He's a J. Crew model. You know, Barbara Gladstone shows him because he's super handsome. Um, and there was like some really crazy stuff people said just sounds about like, like... Sounds like jealousy more than anything, doesn't well, it? Well, so tell me <laughs> how hilarious it is as a student, right, being told like, Hans Hacke is art, you know, Joseph Kasuth, like that's who you should be trying to be like. And if I brought up Matthew Barney, all of a sudden these very critical people became extremely subjective, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it's like, I'm like, isn't Matthew Barney like the ultimate postmodern artist? Like not only is he taking the symbolism and the semiotic nature of our current reality and recontextualizing it into these like really crazy grand narratives you know that they critique for being autobiographical but it's like all art is autobiographical you know um it was just crazy how like matthew barney like could short circuit the entire critical infrastructure of like of a school, like in every class I was in, you know, and I think like 
I would like continually double down. You know, to me, Matthew Barney is doing the same thing like a a painter like Van Eyck or like Hieronymus Bosch or Max Ernst. I mean, there's so many artists who take reality and reconfigure it and represent it to you in a way where it kind of disrupts the nature of your understanding of reality, you know? And well, the, I, I do think that to the testament of those artists, it's, it's always a force from the trees thing. Like it's easier to, to see that importance or relevance or the context much yeah. after it's hard to see it in the moment. I think it's, or at least it's a little harder for most people to see it in the moment. Which people? You need that time and space. Whoever's reflecting on whether that art is an important movement or is of importance, it's easier to see the relevance when you have some time and space from it. You know what I mean? So in the moment, there's a yeah. lot of people knee jerk reacting and be like, yeah, that guy's a football player climbing around the gallery. That's not art. You know, yeah. that's ridiculous. And then, you know, as years go by and you see that work in context of what has come after that, there's, there's a more nuanced, interpretation i'm sure there's a lot of people who maybe now don't feel the same way they i did think then. there's both oh i'm sure there is i think both, all of definitely. the all of those possibilities are true you know yeah for sure and i think like when it came to my own work um and my own understanding of my place in the art world at when i was a cooper and kind of faced with these like very interesting um ideas I basically decided like there's is no place for me in the art world. You know, very simply where, at that. Or is every place? I mean, at that point I basically said, I guess I'm going to go work in fashion because at least in fashion at that time I did. Yeah. You did illustration at least in fashion at that time. Panza Schuller, which is a pretty great brand. Yeah. They were awesome. I mean, when I started working there, it was like a year after I graduated from Cooper and you know, they were still students at Parsons and we were just friends and they asked me to design their logo and then their original logo. And then I did. And then as their collection grew, like I started designing textiles for them. And, you know, 10 years later, it was like from five people to like a hundred people in an office doing like right. these crazy collections. And it was a really cool thing to experience. Uh, but, you know, the reason I thought fashion was interesting and, you know, because of my mom, I was always into fashion. But I thought, especially in the 90s, it was this thing happening where, like, the idea of branding became, like, a big thing where people realized, like, oh, if we want to, like, sell shoes, let's build a whole world around it, you know? Right. And where the ad campaign, the runway show, the clothes, um, the packaging, like every aspect was considered and walking into like one of the green Prada stores in the nineties was like an entire experience from like the way people treated you, the way they were dressed, the way they would package everything, the way you signed your receipt. It all like was super futuristic and crazy. And those experiences to me were really inspiring. Um, and then the opposite was happening with people like Martin Margiela, you know, who were like deconstructing yeah. the idea of fashion, but it was like these brands were each building like their own very specific world. And, and I thought that was really inspiring. So I thought, you know, I got the opportunity to be 
part of that, like on the ground. And that was really cool. And I did try to show, you know, I showed James Fuentes, um, but my artwork, every time I would do a show back then, I mean, it was always dismissed as illustrative. Was it similar to what you're doing now in the sense of like imagined worlds with otherworldly beings? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm very like, you know, like I was saying before, I'm not the artist who's like going to do like an awesome image, like a reproduction. Like I, my thing was always narrative or creating a world, which is probably why like I love Matthew Barney so much. Like I'm interested in the Wars. entire, well, I'm interested in the entire thing, right? Yeah. So I can't just make a nice drawing. I have to draw something I'm imagining and I can and I don't imagine things individually. I imagine them in a context and in a series. Um, You're like more of a concept record guy than the hit single. I think so. I think that's probably a good way to put it. Um, I'm interested in the whole thing. So all yeah. my shows always have a narrative behind them. Whether I share that narrative along with the show or don't, You know, it kind of doesn't matter because... People are just going to look at paintings, but I need the narrative and I need to build that entire world just to, um, to be able to make the work. Yeah. Um, Were you into artists like Matthew Ritchie who just do the universe building? I like Matthew Ritchie. You know, Matthew Ritchie was cool because like him, like Matthew Ritchie, Inca Essenhai, um, you know, there were artists like in that moment where everyone's telling you not to paint who were mm-hmm. painting and making right. it theirs, you know, and doing cool stuff. Um, you know, I remember the first time I, I saw a John Curran show and like that short circuited my brain. Cause I was like, how is he allowed to paint like that? Like, aren't they like, yeah. how are like people not like protesting at the gallery that someone's not only painting, but painting in this very decadent kind of, classical way like everything they're telling me not to do this guy's doing and he's like and and it's funny like and it has a sense of humor so it was like the perfect storm where i was like oh maybe like maybe it is possible but you know the stigma stuck with me because i painted i took that one semester of painting in sophomore year and i literally didn't paint again until 2019 well, it's a pretty good break. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were working, too. Like, that was probably a pretty serious job that you had. Yeah, the job was extremely serious. Yeah. Um, it was full-time. And full-time... Imagine you wouldn't even have time like, to paint, let alone the... No, I would make art, but most of it was, like, in my sketchbook and very conceptual. And, you know, I did work on paper mostly, which is probably another reason why, I like, my work didn't really gain any traction back in like back in the day, like in the teens. No, not the teens, before the teens. And like the pre My last show at James Fuentes was in two thousand nine. You know, and I graduated college in two thousand. So like those like ten years where I worked in fashion, like I tried, you know, to do art, but like just wasn't well received. Um and I was also like working on music stuff and doing a lot of artwork and shooting music videos. Um, you know, as you do in New York, you just get 
into everything. And it's pretty utopic, like all your friends, you work on all your friends' projects and all that stuff. And my job in fashion actually felt the same because the guys I was working with were my friends and it was a pretty fluid, you know, as the years went on, it got less fluid as it became more professionalized. But at least in the beginning, it was kind of like a free for all. Um, but I learned some extremely valuable things from working in fashion, you know? Yeah. And I think the approach that the designers use to create an individual collection, I still apply when I make a, an art show, right. which is like this very rigid process of like, you have your conceptualization stage where you draw and collect images. You use images to create a color palette you know, then you try to draw and flesh out the ideas, then you edit them down to like a collection, right? Like a runway show. Mm -hmm. And then you make the actual clothes and show them. And that's still how I make a show. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, so the detours, I think are extremely valuable, because at the time, I think, like you said before, you don't really see what's happening in the moment. But then as things evolve, you start to get a sense of all the advantages you've gained and the things you've learned, even though maybe at the time it felt inauspicious or frustrating, you know? Right. Well, as uh, someone who has had that interest probably handed down to you from growing up, as you mentioned, of an interest in, you know, design, furniture, art, illustration, fashion, music, painting, performance, all that stuff. Yeah. And then that seeing that mirrored in postgraduate life after, you know, working in fashion and, and being in a collective and doing music and videos and all that stuff. And now from the outsider's view, it looks as though now you, you seem like you're really locked into your painting. And, yeah. You know, having shows and, and you've moved upstate, which I'm sure is a little less busy than the city yeah <laughs> um, have you do you feel comfortable sure. in a, a shift of probably more insular and doing a little more you know just focusing on you and uh, but i don't know maybe you're still doing all this stuff just at the same tilt as you were before but I, i'm guessing that you probably are locking in a little more to your own studio and maybe doing a little less of that how is that dynamic shift if it is on the first big shift for me like I said, you know, I, I hadn't painted since 1998. I had made art and shown, you know, between graduating from school um, and 2009. You know, from 2009, when I had my last show with James Fuentes, I kind of was like, I don't think I'm going to be an artist. So I had to like figure out what I was going to do. Weirdly, I moved to LA thinking like, well, I'll keep working freelance and then I'll keep developing my art. But um, I was actually really open to like switching careers, maybe like getting more into film and animation, like maybe doing concept art and stuff like that, because I just didn't think like being a fine artist was going to happen for me anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and over the years I lived in LA where I wasn't showing or even thinking about showing my freelance work kind of started drying up, but then my costs kept going up because I had kids and 
I was like really hustling hard for work. You know, I would do whatever I could, but because I had more free time, I started weirdly things started kind of coalescing in the art thing where I would, I was still doing work on paper, but you know, these figures now that I'm known for these kind of abstract figures kind of started appearing in this weird way. Um, and one of my really old friends and not Evgi, who's a gallerist in LA, but we grew up together and we've known each other since we were teenagers, um, saw them and said, Oh, you know, I have a project space. You should show, you should show them, um, in my space. And I was like, Oh, that would be cool. You know? And I got all psyched and I had a very close family friend, like take me out to coffee and sit me down and was like, listen, there's only one thing I'm going to tell you. And that's, you cannot show works on paper at this show with a knot, you know? And I was like, I can't paint. I haven't painted in forever. Like, you know, and at that point, like painting was actually like starting to be pretty happening and people painted, but I didn't know if I would be able to paint. Yeah. Because I had been a while. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't. And I, and he basically made like an economic <laughs> plea to me where he's like, look, even a cheap painting sells for more money than a work on paper. And you have a family, you got to like, He's like, so you're going to put all this work into the show and like not make any money. He's like, you could maybe, maybe nothing sells, but even if one painting sells, that's more money than if you sell like all the drawings, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Cause drawings are like, you know, for the level I was at, it wouldn't be that much money and it's crass and messed up to talk about money when you talk about art, but you know, you also have to live. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't choose to be born in a capitalist hellscape. Like, this is just where I am. Like, what am I supposed to do? You know? Yeah. So I And they have to a, pay rent. And you know, galleries have to pay the bills and so they're yeah. gonna give you people. So give I don't know. Blood, it's like there's so much, you know, especially nowadays, like so much idealistic and romantic talk about the role of the artist in society. But I'm like, dude, art has always been for rich people. Art has always been at the service of empire. Like, what are we talking about? What period in history was art about the individual? Like, the 50s, you know? Like, yeah. the end of the 1800s in France, you know? Like, man, and these people. Like, art has always been for rich people, you know? Like yeah. in Roman times, like who do you think designed the buildings and made the sculpture? Like those are all artists, you know, ancient Egypt, like, the Byzantine uh, empire, like every civilization that we know of because of their art, all the artists who were born in that time were put to use in the service of the empire. You yeah. know, all the art that we look at in museums was paid for by the church. Like, what fantasy are we living in where it's like art is about truth and the individual? It's like, unfortunately, no, it is a commodity, you know? But yeah, like, it's I not didn't necessarily needed to live, you know? It's, no, it it's is, not needed. In a way, it is a luxury. Um, it is a luxury. Yeah. It's but don't a you luxury think nowadays item. There's, way, there's way more talk about the business side or selling or 
prices or getting your work out. I feel like with social media and the internet, things are so much more. Um, yeah, because it I makes sense that there's a push to kind of take charge of your life financially in a time when financial insecurity is like the most prevalent thing anyone thinks about, you know? Well, well so, also school is, you know, exorbitantly more expensive than it used to be. So you come out of yeah, school like, and there's a little more pressure, you know, it's like, I got to, those loan payments are going to kick in in a couple of minutes and I got to find a way to make some money. You know? Yeah. I mean, here it's like where I throw you the X cause it's like, this is like a crazy rabbit hole. You know, oh yeah, we're not going but, there. No, no. But that's when it separate, comes to that's our new podcast that we're going to start, you and I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how crazy is it? You know, I don't, and I, and I see it like art. You know, everyone has like there's these utopic ideas about like what art is. And when you first asked me the question, you know, I have this recoiling inside me because like. It's so hard to talk about being an artist today without having to define what art means. And I have a very clear idea of what art is. You know, to me, it's never been a question. It's not like, is this art? Is that art? Am I an artist? Like, I've always known I'm an artist, whether that was reflected in my reality by the world, you know, was a different thing. But I've always known what art is because I have a very deep emotional connection to the things that inspire me. Right. So it doesn't have to be a painting. A painting is just one possible art object. But, you know, I went to BAM once and saw Trisha Brown dance company, like do like these retro performances of like pieces. I think she did with, who was it? It might've been Donald Judd. I don't know. It was, but it was like the craziest dance performance I've ever seen. And I was like, I had like a bullfrog in my throat trying to not cry because I was so moved by how aesthetically incredible the whole thing was. The music, the sets, the movement. You know, I'm like yeah. deeply, deeply passionate about the things I like. And that's not something that's up to me. That's just how I was born. Right. And to me, art has always been like the thing that makes me feel that feeling. And it's a very personal thing. And when you ask me, like, you know, am I into my art? It's like, yeah, I feel super fortunate to finally, past the age of 40, get to a point where I can actually synthesize the things I've learned and seen into something coherent that makes sense. And to me, the irony is not lost that it's painting. Because when I was a kid, I would have said, oh, I want to be like a animated film director you know i want to work at ilm and do concept art or i want to have like my own fashion company do all the aesthetics and once i started painting or trying to paint for this show and i was like how do i take like my watercolor drawings and project them onto a canvas as i actually did it in reality with materials in my hands, I started to gain a completely new understanding of art and process. This experience that had been mediated to me my entire life about what it means, all of a sudden I realized like it takes a life of its own. Like painting is 
I think it's persisted for the thousands of years of humanity that it has. Because a painting is literally a window into another dimension. There's no other way to describe it for me, right? When people debate what people paint and the content of painting, like, I don't care. When people diss like a Jackson Pollock because it's abstract, I'm like, that doesn't matter, you know? To me, it's more about a rectangle in space that you paint on with intention, right? Whether that intention is to create an image or to let out your anger, you know, or to make your dream beautiful lady painting, like, it doesn't matter. What matters is that there is this rectangle in reality that you can work to create an image of everything you know and everything you feel inside you, and you can show it to other people. And it's amazing that then individual people see that painting and their own reality is reflected back at them, not yours. Right. You know, so yours is like the suggestion, but ultimately every single person who sees a painting gets their own reality reflected back to them. Um, You know, that's why I like, I hate art. Like there's art I hate so deeply, you know, like there's paintings that I'm like, I hate that painting, but I know it's just about me. You know, I'm like, everyone should be an artist. Every artist should succeed. Every artist deserves to live. I think if you're courageous enough to like, to do something in reality, right? If you're willing to take on this universal format that is the rectangle on the wall of the painting, you deserve, you know, whatever reward you get for trying it. You know, it's like the ultimate irony of like modern art. It's like, I could do that. It's like, bro, you know how easy it is to draw? But you don't. Right. Only people who make art make art. And the ultimate irony is that, like, I see the importance and the relevance of painting so late in my life in a moment when the world has moved on from reality and exists in a virtual world. You know, because 90% of people who see my paintings are going to see them this big on the phone. Most people never see my paintings in person. Most people see no paintings in person. They see them on Instagram, you know, and a photo of my painting is just content. It's not my actual painting. Yeah. But the experience of making painting and the experience of being able to make whatever I want like erases any sort of fantasy I could have about the life the painting is going to have once it leaves my studio. Because to me, the value is the fact that I get to make a painting and I get to make it exactly the way I want. It's a hundred percent my vision. I don't have assistance. I'm alone with my headphones, you know, and I just get to like go into myself and live in a fantasy 
you know, which is required of me to actually make the, the paintings. And I get to go into myself and I get to reflect on everything I've seen, everything I've experienced. And it weirdly synthesizes itself into artwork because it's also like I'm talking about it in this grandiose way. But ultimately it's like me drawing in my sketchbook and being like, oh, I like that drawing. And just like a little tiny scratchy gesture is enough to create an entire painting, you know? So it's very much about like the act of painting as opposed to like enjoying a painting once it's done. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people ask me, you know, do you, is it hard whenever you finish your paintings and you send them off to a show or you, and I'm like, no, it's really about that moment of making yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And that I think is where, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a painting, a sculpture or performance or whatever. It's really about that that sort of moment of whatever state you're in whenever you're creating and thinking about it and that exhilaration. But uh, yeah. a lot of, I think that's where the similarities with music might be a little more direct is because a lot of times, I mean, I used to play music and recorded and toured and all that stuff. And to me, it was really about when you're just in a room playing and you're feeding off the sonics of the other people. And it's, it's that moment. And, um, and it goes off and it could be recorded or people can say, well, I don't really like that or whatever, but it's truly, it's about that, um, create the moment of creation. that really kind of, um, drives you and pushes you and is rewarding. So I, I think, you know, all that other stuff, the container that it's in, how that looks, how people feel about that, that's all after the fact, you know, it, it's really about the doing. And f for me as an artist, it's like, if I can put myself in a position where I can keep making things that I want to make and exploring, that's the ultimate goal. It's not whatever the shows or the, you know, it's, it's, that's really the the best part of it. Yeah. You know, I, I really like Joseph Boys and, one of the things I love about Joseph Boyce is like how generous he was with his definition of art, you know? Yeah. And he would say like, everyone is an artist, you know, the term art comes from skill, from like doing, from physically doing something. And, you know, here's where I start to sound like a Luddite, but I spent 20 years or not 20 or almost 20 years actually where all my work was on the computer. And it's really unsatisfying. It's really unsatisfying. And it's also really crazy to think like if the lights go out tomorrow, everything I did is gone. Yeah. You know, like it only exists because the phone exists. It only exists. Right, but if it's in exists. the act of creation, then all that other stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter it's if it's true. a JPEG or a painting or if but the whatever it is. That's true. But I think for me, the big difference is when I make a painting, I'm making it with my hands in reality. Right. Um, and that experience is like without like the conceptualization part, which you can do on the computer and the computer, I use the computer in my process. So it's not like I'm dissing the computer. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if I put all that effort, I'm having much more fun standing up mixing color and applying it to the canvas than I ever did like painting something in Photoshop. Um, Cause it doesn't seem real. You know, I still like drawing on paper. I have a really nice tablet, but I still like drawing on paper better because the tablet has like 
you know, a gap between like the screen and like it's has no resistance. Um, you know, line is super important to me and drawing is really important to me. And I just can't have the experience I need to have with line on a screen, even like an iPad pro or whatever that are really good. Yeah, For different. me, it's still about paper, you know, and it's so about the feel and all those choices I think are dictated by, by like what you want to experience as an artist. Um, yeah, I think it's just a different, that tactile uh, experience is different. And, you know, one isn't, I mean, for certain people, maybe one isn't necessarily better than the other, nah, just a different no experience. Yeah. Because I, I'll show a painting and I show an animation next to the painting. And the animation does stuff that the painting can't do, and the painting does stuff that the hundred percent. Yeah. So it's every medium has. Yeah. Totally, every medium has its advantages. You know, like when we talk about music being the ultimate art form, then I start to think like, well, for me, I think it's animation, actually. But the problem with animation is that it's such a nascent medium, like so little animation has been made by humans that I don't even think we've begun to explore the possibilities of animation as like an art form and as a storytelling device, you know, like I grew up watching, like I said, some Japanese cartoons, they're like TV cartoons, Disney cartoons um, and Disney movies. And when I was 14, I saw that Akira was playing in the University well, of Miami movie theater. And um, that one. <laughs> I mean, dark one. it's dark, but I went to see that movie and I came out a different person. Oh, yeah. Because it, the possibilities, it showed me that the heights of amazingness that animation could achieve. You know, I I can't think of another movie I saw that made me feel like so blown away by by like how incredible it is, you know, and it's dark, but that also made it kind of better because it made it stand in harsher contrast to all the animation I had seen before that. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, But it's also like the most tedious and expensive medium. Um, you know. Yeah, it takes a long time, and and it's new. I mean, the the technology is ever changing, you know. Yeah, which is the speed of that is so different than if you look at something like painting and the technology of paint and how it's changed over centuries. So it different hasn't. than animation and that <laughs> the evolving the updates, the software updates. Isn't that it's cool changing. about paint? But no, it's like funny though. Like, you know, I I went to the Prado last time I was in Madrid, and I got to see this painting, The Triumph of Death by Bruegel and mm-hmm. um, Garden of Earthly Delights there by Hieronymus Bosch. And you didn't throw soup was... on it, did you? No, I did not. Okay, all right, just checking, <laughs> just checking. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at those paintings, I mean, they, I don't know, dude. I don't know. They hold up. They hold they, up. They more than hold up. When people say painting's dead, I'm like, maybe it died then because <laughs> I still don't, you know, there's definitely like insane painters now. There's a lot of good painters now, which I think is awesome. You know, um, so many people like I really 
really admire who are just painters. Um, so I do think it's kind of like a new or a renaissance, if you will, for painting. Um, but I see its relevance, you know, yeah. it's almost like a, it's almost like more than just looking at it as, Oh, it's art and galleries for rich people to buy. How about it's like a, a physical chronicle of human existence and our entire reality. There you go. You know? I think you just coined the phrase, but that is I mean, think about it, identify. but yeah, think about yeah. like, you know, this kind of like a, if you'll, allow me to go into like a stoner thought right but sure you know if you think about every painting that exists in the world today physically that exists right and you took them all and displayed them in chronological order in one venue like that would be the most incredible vision like when we talk about like an individual painting reflecting your own personal reality to yourself, every painting displayed at the same time that exists in the world in chronological order would be the craziest mirror back to our entire existence. Yeah. You know, because you can also think of like a painter, you know, and this applies to all arts, but I think if we're talking about painting, I think it's really interesting to think of an individual painter as an individual unit of of production right mm -hmm. so some people make one painting in their lifetime some people make hundreds right but the fact that they're working in this shared format over time is like a recording of time it's almost like a like a time-lapse photography or something you know right so each individual painter is making their own individual painting and that in the in specific moment in time that can never be reproduced. But what remains of that effort in that moment in time in that life is an actual object that represents that, you know? Right. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at painting that I think highlights its importance outside of the individual content of the painting, you know? Yeah. Because there's this constant back and forth, especially in new media, because I got to write about stuff like, oh, it's a, uh, you know, process based abstraction is cool. Oh, now it's like figuration is cool. And now it's this and now it's that it's like, none of that stuff matters. I mean, you know, people are going to make the art they make based on who they are and where they live and the moment and time in which they live. And if we appreciate that for what it is, then all art is cool and all painting is valid, even bad painting, you know, like I love sure. bad art. Like I don't, I feel like the biggest issue I have, especially like living today and being on places like Reddit or the internet in general, you know, it's like how people like really hate art. They hate the art world. They hate everything it stands for. And they think that art, is bullshit, which people have been saying like in the U.S. at least since the '50s, you know, because yeah. it was like the birth. I'm of sure people abstraction forever have been saying it. <laughs> you know, so many people. There's like this chorus of people constantly reiterating like that art is bullshit, you know, or like using like 
Maurizio Catalan's banana as like an example of how debased art is. It's kind of missing the point. If you equate the idea, like let's say the idea is that an artwork's worth and value is directly relative to how skillfully painted and realistic it is. And I feel like that's how people judge art, right? Not people that are quote-unquote educated in art. Well, because they don't know the language. They don't know where the language broke off from just reproducing something to becoming uh, internal to the own discussion of what art is trying to do at this point. So people still think it should operate as a camera are missing the point of what contemporary art is. Yeah, and, you know, painting stopped operating as a camera when the camera was born. Because there's a direct relationship between the identity crisis of painting and the birth of the camera. You know, there's a direct relationship there. The reason painting became modernism and broke away from this very Beaux-Arts academic model of reproducing reality as the pinnacle of what can be achieved in art, um, stuff got really weird. You know, yeah. and just as in ceramics, once they started making plates and machines, you know, just changes the role of ceramics and culture. It, that happens with every creative expression when it's originates from some sort of like you know functioning purpose and then mutates out of that. Yeah, and I think it's like an issue of I get like who wants to learn about art history, who wants to be art educated if you don't care about art. It's so much easier just to dismiss it, you know. And if you bring that up, people say, oh, you're such a snob, you know, like it's so elitist. And I'm like, yeah, but is the plumber elitist when he shows up to your house to fix your pipes? That's the thing. They don't care. They just want the toilet to flush. He has, yeah, he has knowledge. (laughs) No, it doesn't. That's a really good point, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Like no one cares at the mechanic how you fix the car because they just want to to take you to A to B. But exactly. with artwork, you're, you have to suspend some disbelief and you have to engage in the overall narrative of what you think is, you know, this artist's intent and all that. And a lot of people don't want to hear that language. They just want to go look at it and be able to understand it without putting in the effort of learning the language of what it's become. And I but, get that. You know, yeah. as artists, we can't worry. We can't, you can't worry about that or else you're you're engaging. It, it's kind of like arguing with someone online who knows nothing about whatever subject it is and they dismiss it and it's almost like why even bother because they're not going to engage in that the conversation about it or inform themselves at all so it's it's almost yeah. like wasted breath you're saying it exactly right so the point you're making is actually the truth you know because the only reason i even have an idea of how people perceive art in a general sense is because i'm believing all the stuff I see online, you know? And it brings me right back to being at Cooper Union, reading Baudrillard, where he describes, like, the whole idea of simulation and how our reality begins to fall apart when we take the simulation of the simulation of the simulation as reality, you know? And who knows, like, if any of the comments I've read about art or even by people could all be bots. It could be one dude spamming every single art thread with the same comments and the same ideas. And here it is like incepted into my brain and I take it like as reality or I have an understanding of how art is perceived, you know? Um, And I think that's like really 
problematic and weirdly terrifying. Um, but you know what the core is to that issue? Because I can kind of yeah. solve this all with oh, yeah? one Let's observation. Do it. <laughs> yeah, is because that idea of the problem of when reality is mutated or, you know, things are, there's these sort of virtual realities of what artwork or paintings or whatever is made. And when things get separated from reality, there's an issue. People have an issue with that or it creates this rift is because our whole idea of reality is based on that it is reality. And we don't know if this is real. We don't, none of us know if any of this is reality. And questioning that forces everyone to question everything they hold about reality and about what they believe in. So if that whole system falls apart, that is people are fearful of that because we're all afraid of like when we die, we don't know what's going to happen. We sort of fear what we don't know. So it's just mirroring a deep seated fear that we all have of not really knowing what this is or what we're doing or what comes after it. So it's almost in a way we have to understand it because it's human nature. Just yeah, as you it's know, human nature for us to try to create things, it's also yeah. human nature for us to be fearful of what we don't know. A hundred percent. And, and you know, to bring it back to my own art. Well if done. I, if I nice. can. Yeah, yeah. Bring it back. Good job. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the, there's a few questions I get pretty often about the work and the primary one is like, what are they? You know, sure. what are these yeah. like figures you paint? Are they real? <laughs> are they real? Where do they come from? Yeah. Are they based on something? Um, and, you know, the quick and easy answer that I give people is like, well, I really wanted to paint figurative, but I didn't want to paint humans. You know, I think humans in paintings, and this is not a critique of painters who paint humans, um, it's just kind of like a an issue I personally have with it, right? Related to what I want to achieve in my work, which is that if you put a human in a painting, it's what you focus on, right? If I see it, a human face in a painting, it's the first thing I'm going to look at. And my brain, which is a human face identifying machine, right? goes straight to that face and runs down the checklist of assumptions you make about another human when you encounter them, right? Yeah. Are they attractive? Are they unattractive? Are they a male, a female? You know, are they a threat to me? Do I know them? You know, that guy's eyebrows are really weird. So your brain goes into autopilot synthesizing the face before it, which we do because we're, you know, that's how we've evolved to understand the reality we live in. Right. And I just don't want that in my painting. I want the whole painting to be taken as one thing, kind of like how an abstract, I think the advantages of abstract painting where like it's an expression and it's an experience, but it's, meaning is not dictated by the inclusion of the most prevalent symbol in our lives, right? Yeah. It makes sense that on Instagram, it's just pictures of people and pictures that 
are pushed forward by the algorithm are pictures of attractive people. And the algorithm knows what an attractive person is because people spend more time looking at it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And to me, there's this logic behind, like, putting a human in a painting because it's immediately about the human. And it's immediately Some people want you. that in the work. A hundred percent. you to have the... What you're explaining is yeah. basically abstraction. The, the yes. reason people like to work abstract is because they don't want people to get caught up on the fact that it's a city or it's a exactly. mountain or whatever. And they want you to look at the paint and look at the color and all that stuff. A hundred percent. By removing the, the visage of something that's repre- representational or relatable, you can just talk about existence or sort of like creatures you can supplant the idea of a narrative of a of a human or a creature into a form and then that's just a level of abstraction that gets you closer to what you want to get some people exactly. want you to actually pay attention to that face and, and some people the emotions and things like that in the face that's recognized 100 so what people and are there's artists do. you know who represent humans in the most incredible ways like you know i saw the last alice neal show yeah that was at the Met, and I was just like, oh my God, they're like, what? Like, every painting is a masterpiece, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it's not that painting humans is bad, but when it comes to me, like, it's just not part of what I'm interested in exploring. Right. Um, but I still get to make a world. I still yeah. get to take elements from our reality, but I place these surrogate beings into it. You know, if someone who's not into art asks me, like, what kind of art do you make? I just say I paint surrealist stuff, I guess, because it's a shortcut, right, to someone understanding my work. I'm not a surrealist because I'm not from the surrealist movement or whatever. But I think some of the ethos, which you just mentioned, are true. It's like the pre-abstraction idea of the suspension of, of, of expectation, that yeah. I'm coming to a painting and it's going to be of the most, you know, the best horse from 1850. Uh, it can literally be anything now and it doesn't matter, you know? And so I paint these things that kind of look like they're in our reality, but kind of are not. I think now that I've been showing for a while, people have started to catch on to certain themes, you know? like that the world these figures inhabit is kind of desolate. There's there's buildings in the backgrounds in a lot of the paintings that imply that there's more of them or some sort of civilization. Um, And they are very gestural because once you remove the face, right, from a figure, it becomes about the gesture. Um, And... And the importance is also how you manipulate and distort the figure, right? Um, And I think ultimately, like, what I'm interested in is, and I've kind of started to realize this lately, and maybe it's giving away too much, Um, but I had someone very close to me who was here, like, pretty recently, you know, we were talking about my work. It was a studio visit. And he said, you know what I like about your paintings? That, like, the figures seem very benevolent. And that, like, really 
struck me because it was not something I did intentionally, but it's something that someone who's very smart and who I really admire um, got from them. You know, it's not something I had seen myself. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that I think our current reality is like borderline unbearable, at least psychologically. Um, and I'm really st- I'm getting the sneaking suspicion that a lot of my work is about showing something else, you know, just showing an existence that just is, you know, um, I had an art professor once at Cooper, actually, um, we were like debating art and the meaning of art. And he's like, you guys have to realize that art is the only thing that isn't everything else. Right, that when you're making art, none of the other stuff exists. You're not making something to sell it. You're not making something for clout. You're not making it to impress your friends. You know, like you can use those things to trick yourself into doing the thing. He's like, when you're really making art, nothing matters. And nothing exists. And, and, you know, there's that really famous Philip Guston quote that, like, when you first start painting, you're there with all your friends and all your teachers, and you keep painting, and slowly they start leaving the room. And then all of a sudden, even you leave. (laughs) Yeah. You know? That's, like, the best quote. And I think that, um, at least for me, be it self-indulgent, and self-centered, um, I get that feeling constantly. You know, this yeah. this transcendent freedom, where it's like for at least this moment, no one is screaming at me, no one is trying to convince me of anything, no one's trying to to force me to publicly acknowledge how horrible everything is. Right. You know, like. It's just me, and I feel like it will always be me. Like, I don't have a choice, you know? I've, I've spent a good deal of my life just trying to come to terms with myself as a, as a thing that exists, you know, which I think yeah. a lot of artists and just humans in general relate to. But I, I, Well, we spend a lot of time on our own yeah. in a box making things. I mean, if you're yeah. lucky. So that, that will harbor. If you're lucky. Yeah, a sense of you building your own world, really. Yeah, and I feel extremely fortunate, you know. You never know how long it's going to last, but at least when it's happening, you know, I feel very fortunate. And it's funny to talk like this because I don't, you know, I'm usually talking to people that already have the Cliff's Notes of where I'm, coming from and what I think. So it's (laughs) almost weird to, to retrospectively rearrange my life to make it make sense, you know, at least uh, artistically, but you know, 
well, hopefully it's somewhat um, useful or fun or interesting to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very big on education, and I think if anything, like um, when it comes to education, especially art education, I feel like um, you know there need to be more points of view. Like there need to be, there has to be more patience for individual perspectives. Um, and obviously the best way to experience art is just to look at art as opposed to studying art or learning about art. But, um, it's kind of cool that we live in a time where there's so many resources now, you know? Um, I mean, there's really terrible YouTube videos about art that could be like its own entire (laughs) conversation, but, um, but there's also really great ones. You know, there's extremely yeah. talented and generous people like just on YouTube who like share. I usually don't agree with them in terms of conceptual things, but in terms of technique and and process and stuff, I don't know. I think like, you know, with all the horrible stuff, there's also really great things about the time in which we live. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it was great talking and, and great to meet. And Yeah, it was uh, super fun. Everyone should go see your work in L.A. and fly. Yeah, please see art in person see, even see if it it's not person. mine i think you know Definitely. the gen xer in me will thank you right right all right well thanks a lot man really nice talking to you man thank you likewise <laughs>